Well, good morning again, Calvary Chapel. Welcome. We're going to pick up our studies through the book of 1 John. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 13. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 13 this morning. It's great to get back on schedule with our two services and uh, uh, through the holidays and all, but it's even greater just to get back to God's Word here and, and where we left off and just um, good stuff this morning. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 13. Of course, it's good stuff every morning because it's God's Word, but uh, awesome. All right, if you're there, Apostle John writes, starting in verse 6, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has a witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you that you... To you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. The title of my study this morning is Knowing That You Know. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to be in your word, knowing, Lord, that your spirit is here to teach us, instruct us in all things, Lord. We thank you for just this sweet time of worship, Lord, and now we just want to continue to worship you through the study of your word. Lord, we pray if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to come into a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray for their salvation today, that they would see their need for you today. We praise you for this time together, Lord. We ask your anointing and blessing upon it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, you may have heard this story before, but it's a great story, and it fits with our study this morning, and I think you'll get a kick out of it. It's a story about a lady who walks into a pet store to buy some food for her dog. And there, prominently perched right by the front door, was this very large parrot that took one look at this woman and said very loudly, Ack! That's the parrot sound. Uh, that's what it sounds like. The, the parrot said, You are the ugliest woman I've ever seen. The woman was shocked. She couldn't believe her ears. She said, What did you say? The parrot said, You heard me. You know you are the ugliest woman I've ever seen. Well, the woman was outraged. She demanded that the manager of the pet store come out from the back, and the man came out. Yes, ma'am, how can I help you? That pair of yours insulted me. He said I was the ugliest woman he'd ever seen. The manager said, ma'am, I'm so sorry. Let me deal with that parrot. Well, he grabs the parrot by the neck off the perch, goes into the back room, smacks it around, the beak back and forth, feathers are flying. The parrot's finally contrite, very sorry. The man said, now you never say anything again, and don't you speak in the presence of that woman. The parrot agreed. They went back out. The man put the parrot back on the perch. The woman was leaving the store with sort of a smug look on her face like, I got you. And just as she's walking out, 
the door. The parrot yelled to the woman, hey, you. She turned around and said, what? The parrot said, you know. (laughs) You know. You know, there are certain things that we all know in life, such as, you know, you don't tug on Superman's cape. You don't spit in the wind. You don't pull the mask off the old old ranger. And you guys are old, okay? You guys are old. That's an old Jim Croce song. You don't mess around with Jim. Now, sometimes I don't think we know as much as we think we do. And sometimes I think we miss the obvious. There's a saying that goes, one thing you know for sure, and that is you just never know. Well, it comes, I mean, that's great when it comes to life and the curveballs that life throws at us. Uh, but when it comes to the Christian life, it's simply not true. The Bible declares that there are certain things that as a Christian we can know for sure. In fact, John has been writing to us about those certain things that we can know for sure. For example, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, John said, In these things I write to you that your joy may be full. See, God wants you to know that you can have fullness of joy. He said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. John wants us to know that God is, has, has a sin prevention program. 1 John chapter 2, verse 26, These things I have written to you, to you concerning those who try to deceive you. John wanted us to know that there would be false doctrines and false teachers trying to lead us astray. And then now here in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, John writes, These things I have written to you, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5. 13. I remember John was combating the heresy of the Gnostics, and that word Gnostic means to know. And I believe John is using a, a player of words. He's being a little sarcastic, I think. He's a little sarcasm. You know, you know, uh, as you know, you guys who think you know, here's the way you can know that you have eternal life. He said this because he wanted us to know that there are certain things we can know for sure as believers, as Christians. And as he finishes out his letter, he lays out for us two more things that we can know for sure. Two things I want to point out to you this morning, if you're taking notes. Two things we can know for sure. Number one, the testimony regarding God's Son. And number two, the assurance of our salvation. Number one, the testimony regarding God's Son. Picture, if you will, John is in this courtroom, and he has taken the the stand, and he's, uh, he's a key witness testifying of Jesus Christ. He's out to prove that Jesus is indeed God in the flesh, come to this earth to redeem mankind. And to prove his case, he presents to the court a testimony. But not his testimony, God's testimony. Look at verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. See, John is establishing God's testimony of Jesus Christ through the blooder, blooder, through the blood, the water, and the Spirit. Now, I believe that John is referring to the baptism of Jesus, the death of Jesus Christ, the water being the baptism, the blood being his death. In fact, in the uh, New English version of the Bible, it, it's translated this way. Jesus Christ is the one who came. He came with the water of his baptism and the blood of his death. And both if you recall, at his baptism and at his death, the Father spoke, the Father testified of who Jesus is. He spoke audibly. Listen, Jesus was predicted by the prophets, vindicated by his own miracles, and was attested 
to directly by his father at two specific times in his life, at his baptism and at his death. That's what I believe verse 6 is referring to here. Remember when Jesus happened, uh, what happened when Jesus walked down to John there, John the Baptist, there by the Jordan River? And he's being baptized and a voice came from heaven, the voice of the Father, testing to the fact that this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. God testified of His Son. And at the same time, we know the Spirit of God descended upon Him like a dove, showing the eternal nature of Jesus and His place in ministry. The Father speaking, the Spirit above, and the Son being baptized. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, that's the water. Second testimony is the blood which, of course, is the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Remember, right before Jesus' death on the cross, he's praying there in the garden in John twelve twenty eight, And he prayed, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And then Jesus would give his life for ours. See, John was there. He was there at the crucifixion. He saw the blood of God's Son drip to the ground. He experienced the darkness that covered the entire land, the earth shake, and the veil of the temple being torn in two from top to bottom as now God was allowing man to come into his very presence. John saw how the Father tested to the fact that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Now again, the background of our book here, the letters that John is writing to the Gnostics, and one of the chief, chief things that the Gnostics said was that Jesus was not the Son of God. That He was just a mere man. A nice man, but, but just a, a man. Remember we talked about a guy named Serinthus. He was the chief Gnostic, and, and he said that he claimed that at Jesus' baptism, the, the Spirit, uh, the, the Christ consciousness came upon him, and that he had his, the Christ consciousness on his life until uh, right before Jesus' death, right before the cross. Then the Christ consciousness left him and Jesus died not as the Son of God but just as a man. John is saying, that's not the way it happened. I was there. Not only do I have a testimony, but, but God testifies it. God has given us his testimony that, that his Son is God incarnate. By the way, when you read the term Son of God in Scripture, it's just another term for deity. The Jews understood that. Remember when the Jews went out to stone Jesus Christ and the reason the gospel says they did was because Jesus made himself to be, or Jesus made God to be his Father, making himself equal with God. So, so, so John is giving testimony that Jesus was indeed God and man, God incarnate. At his baptism uh, and at his death, the Father testified uh, both. Uh, you know, but it's a threefold testimony. The testimony of the water, the testimony of the blood, but then the third testimony to really clinch the case, if you will, we see the Spirit of God. Verse 6, the last part of verse 6, verse six says, and it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is true. You see, when we're born again, the Holy Spirit indwells us. He's given us uh, to bear witness. He's given it to us to bear witness to Christ. We trust the Holy Spirit's witness because as we read here, the Spirit is true. See, we were not there, we were not present at Jesus' baptism. We were not present at Jesus' death, but the Holy Spirit was present. And the Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the only person active on the earth today who was present when Christ was ministering here and bears witness to our hearts that Jesus, indeed Jesus is God in the flesh come to save us. See, I believe John is, is wrapping us a nice picture here of the deity of Jesus Christ, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it all starts back to, to what we just celebrated a couple of weeks ago, the birth of Christ. We know when Jesus came into this world, He supernaturally came through Mary. In fact, the Scripture tells us in Luke 1, verse 35, 
that the angel answered and said to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Yes, Jesus uh, was man, yes, but he was also God in the flesh. And through the Holy Spirit, we see the infusion of deity with humanity at that moment of conception in the womb of Mary for all eternity. Because even now, as we sit here, Jesus is the, the glorified God-man in heaven. The humanity of Christ now is glorified humanity, yes, but yet he still possesses it in heaven in his exalted state. I want to give you this illustration before. It's by Pastor John Corson, but it's a great illustration about what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And it's worth, worth us thinking about when it comes to Jesus coming to this earth and what he's done for us. The story goes like this. Suppose you die today and go to heaven. There the Father takes you on the tour of the cosmos where you see places to surf that, you've never, that have never been discovered. He says, you're ready to ski, ski down Mount Zion. You're blown away by the beauty and glory of heaven. Then he takes you beyond the farthest star and shows you a tiny little planet isolated in a far corner of the universe. As you look closely, you see that it's inhabited by dogs. Little dogs on a planet. How cute, you say. You look a little more closely, says the Lord. And as you do, you see the dogs are not so cute after all. With teeth bared and foam dripping from their mouths, they're biting, they're devouring one another. This is sick, you say. Those dogs are all rabid. Destroy them, Lord. No, he answers. I love them. I want to tell them that I have a plan to heal them, but they don't listen to me because I'm too big for them to relate to. That's why I brought you here today. I want you to go down to that planet and tell them that I have an antidote for their rabid sickness. Okay, you say. But wait, there's more, says the Lord. If they're going to listen to you, you need to become like them, a dog. Okay, let me get this straight. You say, you want me to become a dog and tell them you have a plan for them, an antidote to heal them. Yes, answers the Lord, but there's something else. They're not going to listen to your message. On the contrary, they're going to turn upon you, they're going to rip you to shreds, and they're going to kill you. But I'll resurrect you with a great glory and honor, but from that point on, you'll be a dog forever. Now, what would you do if God asked you to do that? <laughs> Lord, isn't there some other way? Uh, I mean, this make me a really big dog, okay? I, you know, something like that. But no, uh, you know, you know something? Jesus Christ becoming a man is a far greater step down than you or I ever becoming a dog. He, his descent was a lower step than we would ever comprehend this side of eternity. Granted, he's resurrected. Granted, he is glorified. But he remains in, in, in his humanity in order that he might pray for us as a compassionate priest and fill the hurts that we're going through right now. Great is this mystery. Incomprehensible is his love for us. Now, we come to verse 7. We need to address verse 7. Uh, let me read it according to the King James, New King James Version. It says, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Now, you may not know this, but that verse is not in a lot of translations that, that, that we use. In fact, if you have a New American Standard Version, that, that verse is not in there. The first part is, just not the last part. The King James Version, which we, you know, we take the, the New King James from, the King James Version is based on the Textus Receptus Manuscript, which is another name for a Greek New Testament. It actually includes that text. Uh, it's in our New King, New King James Version. Now let me say this. This verse is not saying anything that is unscriptural, but is it a text that is questionable and how it got in the Bible, we're not quite sure. Whether it belongs or not, we are absolutely sure 
that it does. See, that's, that is not a problem because what it teaches is absolutely scriptural. It's teaching the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, if you don't want to accept this verse as being authoritative, that's fine. There's not a problem with that because what it is taught is verses clearly taught in, in many other places throughout God's Word. I mean, Luke one thirty five is a perfect example of that. We just looked at that already, the, 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 the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary. 2 Corinthians 13.14, listen to this verse. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. There you have the Trinity. Or this verse, Galatians 4.6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. I mean, there are plenty others. John chapter 8, the story of the woman taken in adultery. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, the healing of the lame man. It's all over the pages of Scripture, all proving the doctrine of the Trinity. I just wouldn't use 1 John 5, 7 to prove it. Now, does that mean we fully understand the doctrine of the Trinity? Not at all. We just have to, by faith, believe it to be true because we have God's Word on it. Maybe you've heard the poem written by John Godfrey Sachs. It's called The Six Men of Indostan. It goes like this. There were six men of Indostan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant, and happening to fall, against his broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl, God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second, feeling of the tusk, cried, Oh, what have we here, so very round and smooth and sharp? To me, tis mighty clear, this wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up, thus boldly up and spake, I see, quoteth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out an eager hand and felt about the knee. What must most this wondrous beast is like is, might, is mighty plain, quoteth he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth guy, the fifth who chanced to touch the ear, said even the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth, so no sooner had begun about to be to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, quote a thief, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion exceeding stiff and wrong, though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. Here's my point. We are talking about God. And we are limited in our understanding. We are finite. He is infinite. And it really doesn't bother me that I can't comprehend the Trinity. And I'm glad, kind of glad that I can't comprehend God. If God were small enough for my mind, He wouldn't be big enough for my needs. If I could get my mind around God, He'd be a pretty small God. So, well, well, I don't understand. Praise God for that. What a frightening thing that you and I, with our pea-sized little brains, could comprehend all of God. There's no way you can fathom God or or, or understand God. But when it comes to the Trinity, you accept it by faith based on the revelation of God's Word. Say, but I don't understand it. So what? That doesn't mean it's not real. I know there's a lot of things that exist that I don't understand how they work, but I know that they're real. Some of our modern technology, it's just amazing. I can't even begin to fathom how they work. But man, I enjoy them. I like them. I use them. My smartphone... My phone, you know, it, it, it's small. I have access to pages and pages of Bible studies that I've written over 
17 years worth. If I printed them all up, they'd probably cover this whole stage up to the ceiling. I mean, uh, on my phone I have my Bible program that has like, like hundreds of books that I can open up and read while listening to music, making a phone call, and texting on this little phone. I have no clue how that works, but it does. I'm glad that it does. In the same way, I know that we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Do I understand it? No. Do I believe it? Yes. Why? Because there's proof. You have God's Word on it. All that to say, again, I would not use verse 7 here to prove the Trinity. I would not suggest that you quote verse 7 to a Jehovah Witness. Because if you've ever tried to, you know the response that you're going to get. There's plenty of other verses to use. How did it get into the Bible? Well, the speculation is that it was put in the margin on one of the, the ancient manuscripts, and one of the copiers just moved it into, over into the text. Now you go, well, gee, wow, our Bible's messed up. No way. Listen, we know with great accuracy what belongs in the text and what doesn't from a multitude, multitude of manuscript and, and evidence. There are thousands of manuscripts we've had. We looked at this Wednesday night, and, and, and as long as, as, as they were compiled, we come to the sure understanding of what truly belongs there. You know, we have the, the canonization of Scripture. These, these issues were prayed over and sought over the Lord over it. And I believe that God superintended even the canonization of Scripture and the comp- compilation of God's Word. And then on top of all of that, we shared this on Wednesday night. We have, have the early church fathers who quoted it. I mean, you know, you can put an entire New Testament together based off of just the, the, the early church fathers, those after the apostles that came afterwards. I mean, then you have all the manuscripts. So don't let this shake your faith in the reliability of God's Word. Now, verse 8. It says, And there are three that bear witness on the earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. Now, that verse does belong in this passage, and it brings us back to what we're looking at, the testimony that we have regarding God's Son. See, it's about assurance, not uncertainty. It's about a sure witness that this is so. John says we have the testimony of the Father from heaven, but he says there's also testimony here on this earth. We have the testimony of changed lives, of you, of me as born-again believers. And it brings up the first testimony on earth. John says, the Spirit bears witness. In other words, God's Holy Spirit that indwells us bears witness to the, to the Holy Spirit of who Jesus is. Paul put it this way in Romans eight sixteen: the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. See, no matter how many people point out your fault and tell you how, how messed up you are and accuse you, I know I'm a child of God because His Spirit bears with, with, with my spirit, and the same for you. Secondly, he says, water bears witness. When you question your salvation, think back to the day that you went into that water at your baptism, and you came up looking like a drowned rat. I mean, what would make you do something like that? It's the Holy Spirit that drew you. To, to want to symbolize that washing away the old man and walking the newness of life. Then you have the blood that bears witness. You know, we come to the communion table, and we, as we drink of the cup that symbolizes Jesus' blood that was shed for us, we're celebrating the work of Christ on our behalf. The Spirit inside you, the baptism that you went through, and the blood shed for you work together as proof of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Again, it's all about assurance, not uncertainty. That's why John says in verse 9, look at verse 9, If we receive the witness of man, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. That word if can be also translated since. Since we receive the witness, the the testimony of man, the testimony of God is even greater. You know, we do believe the witness of men, don't we? We we trust people. 
I mean, a few years back when my doctor came in and said, you're having a heart attack, we're going to have to put a stent in your heart to save your life. I didn't ask him where he went to school. Okay, I didn't ask him if he knew what he was doing. I, you know, I didn't say, oh, come on, doc, I don't believe you. Are you nuts? You know, I said, go for it. Do it now. Get me fixed up. I trusted the doctor knowing what he was talking about. And I can tell you on a side note, my doctor's a genius. Then God used him to save my life. But the point is, I trusted my doctor. I took him at his word. We take people at their word every moment of the day. I mean, what would it be like if you didn't? I mean, you get up in the morning and your wife says, look, I, I made some breakfast for you. And you go, wait a minute. Maybe she poisoned my cereal. I don't trust her. So you skip breakfast. And you go to get in your car to go to work. Oh, you know, I don't trust that Toyota dealership. Maybe my car is going to blow up on me. So you walk to work. Then you get to work. And, oh, I don't know about that elevator. I don't, it, may, it may snap. I don't know. You know. I mean, think about what John is saying here. We tend to believe the words of men, but we reject the words of God. Why is it on payday, you know, you breathe a sigh of relief? Why is it, you know, when your income tax checks comes in the mail, if you get one, you go, all right, you know, man, thank you, IRS, provision. What about believing in the promises of God, the provision of God, taking God at his word? Promises like, my God shall supply all of my needs in Christ Jesus, or seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added unto you. Why is it that the test, you receive the testimony of the IRS or the bank, but not from God? So John is saying, you receive, since you receive the testimony of men, receive the testimony of God because it's greater. But sadly, today there are many people who are so proud of the fact that they, they won't believe anything they can't see, you know, feel, or touch. Oh, I can't believe in a God because I can't, I can't touch Him or see Him or feel Him. You know, remember, that's what Thomas went through. There when Jesus appeared in the upper room and Thomas wasn't there and, and Thomas said, unless I put my hand in his side and fill the nail prints in his hands, I will not believe. And so Jesus had to make another trip back just for Thomas. So, okay, Tom, here, you put your hand on my side, you know, look at my hands, you know, and, and, and it's at that point Jesus said to him this, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Again, it's that assurance. Dwight Eisenhower, the late president, put it this way. It takes no brains to be an atheist. Any stupid person can deny the existence of a supernatural power because man's physical senses cannot detect it. But there cannot be ignored the mystery of first life or the marvelous order in which the universe moves about us. All of these evidence the handiwork of a beneficent deity. For my part, the deity is the God of the Bible and Christ his Son. See, it's all about Jesus. God's ultimate message is Jesus. God's ultimate pointing to all is all to is to Jesus. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. He's the healer of the nations. John calls him the Logos, the Word. In other words, when God has something to say, it's all wrapped up in Jesus. That's what John is saying here. Again, because the Gnostics were getting into the believers' heads and causing them to question who Jesus was. So John just gives them the bottom line. He says, you have the testimony of men. You have the testimony of the Holy Spirit in your life personally. You have the testimony of your baptism, of communion. You have the testimony of Jesus at his baptism. You have the testimony of Jesus shedding his blood for you. On top of all that, you have the testimony of God himself, God's word on it. So then if you still don't believe, then John says in verse 10, that you've made God out to be a liar because you have not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. You're calling God a liar when you refuse to believe who Jesus is. 
Of this, Spurgeon said, and I quote, The great sin of not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is often spoken of very lightly and in a very trifling spirit, though it was scarcely any sin at all. Yet according to my text, and indeed according to the whole tenor of the Scriptures, unbelief is the calling God a liar, and what could be worse? It's not that you can't believe. You refuse to believe the truth of God, His testimony of His Son, Jesus Christ, and that makes you calling God a liar because you, you refuse to believe the testimony of God. And here's the problem with that. If a person continues over and over and over to reject Jesus Christ, then they can get to a place where their heart is so hardened and, and, and so callous that they can no longer believe. Jesus calls that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He said this, in Mark 3, 28 and 29, he said, All sins will be forgiven to the sons of man and whatever blasphemies he may utter. But he who blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Listen, the, the work of the Holy Spirit is to draw us, uh, the unsaved, to people, to, to, to Jesus. But if you reject that work, then you're committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you're subject to eternal condemnation. Now, I don't know when that point is in your heart, when it grows more callous and over and over, when it's too late, God does. But, if, but if, I say don't push it. If you don't know Christ, give your life to Him now before it's too late. So point number one, we have the testimony regards Son. Our second and final point, we can know for sure the assurance of our salvation. Look at verses 11 through 13. And this is a testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. Who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. You know, these are some of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. I believe every Christian should have this memorized. These are key passages that we ought to put in our memory. When I have the privilege of praying with someone to receive Christ, one-on-one, and I'm sitting there with them, the moment we finish that prayer, and they've asked Jesus into their heart to forgive them of their sin. This is the first place I turn to, to read them. He who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son does not have life. Man, you read those verses to them and you watch their faces light up. Because listen, I tell them, if you prayed that prayer, and if you really meant it from your heart, and you were sincere, and you, you have eternal life. Your sins are forgiven. You're now a child of God. You now have the Son. And, you, and, and, and having the Son, you now have eternal life. See, this is a great passage because it teaches us the assurance of your salvation. It teaches us that you can know that you know that you are truly saved. Now, there are some people, you know, if you speak to them about eternal life or being saved or being born again, hey, are you saved? Do you really know that you're saved? That they Are you arrogant? Are you rude? You know, that they think you're being mean-spirited. But that's only because they don't understand themselves. Perhaps they don't really have assurance of salvation that they're truly saved again. But, but to those that are truly born again, God wants us to have that assurance. Again, that's why he says, and this is the testimony that God has, has given to us. He has given to us. Not he might give to us, or there's a good chance he's going to give to us eternal life. Or if God isn't really in a good mood, there's an outside chance you might have eternal life. If he's, you know... You can feel that you have eternal life. No, it's not about feelings. That you may know. Every believer should be able to walk in assurance of his or her salvation. Because salvation is not based on, on feelings. It's based on facts. It's based on God's word. Years ago, the great reformer Martin Luther wrote this little poem. 
He said, for feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God, not else is worth believing. Though all my heart should feel condemned, for want, for want of some sweet token, there is one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. I like that. John says, you can know that you know that you'll spend eternity in heaven because you have God's word on it. And when you put your faith and trust in Christ, the Bible is adamant in saying you are saved. So many other cults, religions out there, they don't have that. You know, a Jehovah Witness does not believe that you can know for certain you're saved. Or Roman Catholics, many of them, they, 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 you know, they don't know. And so I love to read them this passage. How do you know you have eternal life? God's Word says so. Now, understand that when John speaks about eternal life, he's not just speaking of quantity. It's not just existence. It's quality. It's a new dimension. It's a new sphere. It's a new quality of life. It happens the moment you're, you're born again. You know, when you, not, not when you die and go to heaven. It's a quality of life. It's a new dimension of life. The assurance of eternal life for the Lord. That's why when you become a Christian, you know, it, for many it's like the sky is bluer, the grass is greener, you know, the sun is nicer and the air smells fresher. Generally speaking, I'm not saying we don't go through trials as a Christian, but life is so much more enjoyable. Because you've come into that new dimension, which is fellowship with God. Prior to that, you're just living like an animal. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. There's a void. There's an emptiness in every human being until you're born again. That emptiness can never be filled until you come to Christ. All the money in the world cannot bring that satisfaction. You know, people sit around and think, boy, if I was just Bill Gates, man, could you imagine you know, being the richest man in the world? Man, then, man, I'd be satisfied. Do you really think that that, that brings happiness to him and joy to his soul? So I don't know, but I'm willing to find out just for a second. <laughs> no. There's just no absolute, there's, there's absolutely no way that will bring joy to the soul. Solomon, the richest man that ever was, found no joy in riches or material things. But on the other hand, if you take a Christian who has eternal life, he may not have a drop of what Bill Gates has, but he has the life of God in his soul. What joy, what satisfaction, what blessed assurance. Why? Because he knows what awaits. Because he knows, even though he may die physically when you have the Lord, listen, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Who believes in me, though he may die, shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Because the believers, I mean, that means we're never really going to die. We just move. We put in a change of address. We pull out our tent stakes and, and move into a permanent dwelling place and go to be with the Lord. It's just a shift from here to there. And it's instant. You know, many, many people think, well, well, the worst thing that could happen is we could die. Well, if you're born again, how is that the worst thing? I mean, you have total assurance that as soon as you're in the presence of, as soon as you die, you're going to be in the presence of the Lord. To be absent in the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. Or as Paul said in Philippians 1.22, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. See, to wind this all down, God wants you as a Christian to know that you know that you know that you're saved. Total assurance. Now, that doesn't give us a license to sin. And we're going to look at that next time. Um, but, but God wants us to be sure that he who has a son has life. He that has not the son has not life. It's pretty simple. If you're in Christ, you're saved. You'll have that abundant life, everlasting, eternal life. But apart from him, if Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, you, you're not going to have that, that abundant life. What awaits is an eternity in the lake of fire, enduring the punishment of God for your sins because you refuse the pardon for your sins through Jesus Christ. Now, if you say that you believe, you still lack that assurance. What more can God do to prove it to you? I mean, uh, you know, let me say this. You know, if, if you lack assurance that you're, you're, you're really 
are totally ineffective as a Christian. I mean, how can you witness to somebody if you don't know for sure that you're truly saved? Hey, do you know Jesus? I'm not really sure I know Jesus, but, but I think you can know Jesus. I'm just not sure if I, I do, you know. Hey, is Jesus forgiven you of your sins? I'm not really sure if he's forgiven me of my sins, but, but I think Jesus can forgive you of your sins. I mean, you can't do that. See, we need to have that assurance of our salvation. That assurance is based upon what God says in his word, and we need to rest in that. So wonderful to know that we have eternal life. Now, there may be a reason why you don't know for sure. Maybe you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not sure that you have the full assurance of your your salvation, why not bow your heart this morning and give your life to Christ? Then you can go out of uh, this church this morning, a new person, and full assurance of salvation, believe in God's word and that God's word is true. We have his testimony. We have that assurance. Again, as we close, verse 13 says, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Listen, there's nothing more important than knowing you have eternal life. Jesus Christ was, was born into this world to save sinners. He died on the cross to take your sin away and your shame and your guilt and to give you eternal life. If you do not have the Son, then you don't have that life. So I encourage you, don't leave here without giving your life to Jesus Christ. If that's your desire, as soon as service is over, just a moment, the elders will be up front. They'd love to pray with you and give you a Bible and let you know what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And you can have that assurance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. We thank you for the assurance that you give to us, Lord, that we don't have to be you know, tossed back and forth. Every time we blow it, Lord, we think we may have lost our salvation. And, and, and Lord, we, we can trust in you and in your word. He that has a son has life. Lord, thank you for the assurance that you've given to us. Thank you for the testimony that you've given to us of your son, Jesus Christ, pointing to him. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing in our hearts. Lord, thank you for the doctrines that we've learned today, Lord. I know sometimes it can be difficult to, to take in, Lord, but Lord, help us to, to, to apply these truths to our lives today, Lord. And Father, finally, I pray if there's anyone here that has yet to give their life to you, Lord, to, to uh, surrender their hearts to you, I pray, Lord, that they would not leave here without making that commitment to you. So we thank you for this time, Lord. We praise you for it, Lord God. We pray, Father, for uh, just our week, Lord. We pray that you'd give us those opportunities, Lord, to, to share the truth that we have, Lord. And so, Lord, we, we give you all the praise and glory and honor, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's all stand and we'll do one last song together.